where common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. I'll be the first to admit that I love a little bit of Roundup in my life. Roundup in my life. Here now is your host. He is quite a character. His name is Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jeff. Jeff Eager. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Oregon Roundup Podcast. I need to start numbering these because if someone in the future is listening to this, this week's wouldn't mean anything to them. I'm recording this on February 17th, 2023. It's about 11 in the morning. So it's that episode that you're listening to right now. And we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about today or by fun, I mean interesting to me. I'm going to talk about the Biden balloon situation, get away from talking about Oregon for just a bit, but then we'll jump right back into the Beaver State with a story about a record number of home, homeless deaths in Multnomah County again in 2022. We'll update on the twin scandals that we are covering here at the Oregon Roundup in our own little way. And that would be the OLCC, Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission. I always want to say Oregon Liquor Control Commission, which is what it used to be called. And it still has the same acronym, Lucky, luckily enough. Cannabis starts with a C, just like control. And then our good friend, Oregon Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan, and the ongoing escapade of her office allegedly investigating the issue with the $500,000 donation to the Democrat Party of Oregon. And then finally, we'll end on kind of a lighter note with a funny little clip I heard about people moving to Bend. For those of you that are in Bend or know about Bend or care about Bend or think Bend is a funny thing to laugh about. All right, let's start with the Biden balloons. This was, what, I think two weekends ago that the story about the Chinese surveillance balloon traversing the United States was played out in real time. It was kind of an interesting story to follow through that weekend. It's rare these days when you get a news story that is unfolding that you really don't know what in the heck is going on for the most part. And the outcome is truly uncertain. And this was definitely one of those one of those stories that we heard about the balloon first when I think it was a television station, newspaper photographer or something in Billings, Montana, got a picture of the thing. And then from there, everyone was updating about it as it went across the United States. Some people think that it happened to go over a lot of our sensitive nuclear sites throughout the country as it made its way to the Atlantic Ocean, where it eventually met its demise at the hands of a Sidewinder missile fired by an F-22 fighter jet at long last. And then since then, the Biden administration has shot down, I believe, three smaller unmanned aircraft in the United States, over the United States, and over Canada in one case. The other three were, or the latter three were a they don't know for sure what it was, but recent reporting is that they were likely or possibly privately owned balloons. I said there was the New York Post had a story yesterday about 
how one of them that was shot down might have been a $12 hobbyist balloon that we shot down with a $400,000 Sidewinder missile. Obviously, this is a story that is highlighting some shortcomings on the part of our national defense in a couple ways. The first and most obvious way is that they apparently, our intelligence agencies, apparently were tracking the Chinese spy balloon from the point that it launched from an island called Hainan Island, which is in the, I believe it's the South China Sea, off the coast of China near Vietnam, which I saw some people refer to it as China's Hawaii. It's kind of a resort area, but also apparently where they launched these balloons. And it may or may not have been intended to just float over Hawaii and Guam and collect intelligence about our activities in those places. And then it may have blown off course and then over Alaska and Canada and through the the bulk of the United States. That is what may have happened. But in any event, our intelligence agencies apparently were watching this thing from the point that it left Hainan Island or launched from there. I saw a, a picture, a satellite picture of the the hangar in which they store these balloons, it looks a lot like if you've ever been to the old blimp hangar in Tillamook, Oregon, it looks a heck of a lot like that. It's just this giant structure with huge doors. The one in Tillamook was used by the U.S. Navy, I believe, toward the end of World War II and then after World War II to store balloons that the Navy used for defense of the West Coast, presumably to keep track of airplanes and boats and whatnot that may be coming at the West Coast from people that didn't like us. If you compare the pictures of the two, I pulled up a Google Earth photo of the Tillamook hangar and put it next to the Hainan Chinese hangar, and they look very similar. I'll try to put that in the in the show notes so you can see it. In any event, the intelligence agencies knew about this thing floating across the Pacific and eventually over the Aleutian Islands, Alaska, etc. And they they didn't do anything about it. Apparently, they didn't even tell NORAD about it. NORAD is the kind of joint operation between Canada and the United States that's supposed to keep an eye on our airspace to make sure that we know as soon as possible if someone's launching ballistic missiles at us. NORAD was developed, during, of course, during the, the Cold War. Our primary concern was Soviets launching ICBMs at us over the North Pole, but it's also been in use for other purposes, including in the War on Terror uh, since then in an attempt to protect the homeland, et cetera, et cetera. Apparently, NORAD didn't know anything about the balloon until it was reported via these photos or video that someone took in Billings. And so the intelligence agencies didn't apparently tell NORAD about it, which is not great. You'd like to think that NORAD would know about a balloon that was apparently the size of three buses and that had been launched from a Chinese facility and was kind of slowly floating over the Pacific and then Alaska and Canada and then shows up over the continental United States. That's not great. Another cause of concern is 
that the Biden administration didn't do anything about it and probably wouldn't have done anything about it. But for the public uproar over the thing, didn't do anything about it until it had floated across the rest of the U.S. and was off the South Carolina coast. And then they they finally shot it down. Their excuses for not having shot it down over Alaska or Canada or anywhere between Montana and the coast of South Carolina was that they were concerned about the debris causing damage when it came to the earth. Since many of us or many of you that are listening are here in the west, western part of the United States, we're pretty familiar with the fact that there aren't a lot of people out here. There especially aren't a lot of people in Alaska. There aren't a lot of people in Montana. So I think for a lot of folks, including myself, that original explanation for why they waited to shoot it down didn't, didn't carry a lot of water. And so why didn't the Biden administration shoot it down? It's possible that they were marginally concerned about the impact of the debris falling on the ground. They also probably didn't want to perturb China. It sounds like they also thought that the intelligence that the balloon would be gathering was minimal and that we could gather some intelligence from watching it as it traversed the United States that would be more helpful. All of these, frankly, sound a lot like post hoc rationalizations for the fact that they were caught kind of flat footed on this and their initial impulse was not to do anything to alleviate this Chinese government piece of equipment that was gathering intelligence, or at least trying to gather intelligence of the United States in our airspace for a couple days. And then they, they shot it down eventually once everyone was kind of upset about that. And then they started shooting down anything that they found in the air, including what may have just been these hobbyist balloons that were that our Air Force is uh, tracking down and dispatching at a fairly regular clip there. The explanation for that was apparently NORAD, after this embarrassing thing where they didn't know about the, the Chinese balloons, turned up the sensitivity on their radar so that they can see smaller stuff, and then they started seeing smaller stuff like potentially hobbyist balloons, and then we started shooting them down. The final way in which this isn't good, if you're concerned about national security agencies' abilities, ability to keep us safe, is the fact that it's pretty obvious that in this case, the policy toward shooting down stuff, unidentified stuff in our airspace, changed dramatically and largely as a result of public opinion. You know, we'd all like to think that the folks that are in charge of keeping us safe know a lot more than we do. They kind of have their their fingers on the pulse of all this stuff that could go wrong to us. They're keeping us safe. In this case, it, it became it, it's pretty clear that if left to their own devices, the Biden administration would have let this thing float off the coast and done nothing about it. And it was only when people got really upset that they were letting it float across the United States that they ultimately decided to shoot it down. And now they're shooting down all kinds of stuff. And they've changed, the, <laughs> they've, they've changed the sensitivity of their detection equipment as a result of people being mad about this Chinese balloon, understandably mad about this Chinese balloon being allowed to cruise across our country and attempt to collect intelligence from us. That's not great. That's not a good thing that our, our national security folks are just reacting to 
public opinion in this way, it seems to me, you'd like to think they have some higher standards for what kind of threats they react to and how they react to them and how they detect them than just whether people are angry at the Biden administration on Twitter. But what it got me to thinking about was an incident back in the in August of 2021. And that that was when the United States was executing a poorly executing a very messy withdrawal from Afghanistan. And there was all, you know, those pictures of the Afghans, our Afghan friends trying to jump on our cargo planes as they were leaving the Kabul airport, falling out of the wheel wells, et cetera. And it was just a a truly chaotic scene. Kind of the low point of that whole escapade when a suicide bomber got to the airport and was able to kill 13 U.S. Marines who were there to help with the evacuation. And before that point, you know, the Biden administration had been saying, well, this is okay, we've got it under control. And then you can't cover up the fact that 13 Americans were just killed as part of this withdrawal. So then a few days later, they conduct this airstrike. Uh, I believe it was a drone airstrike against a car and people in and around a car in Kabul that they suspected were headed to the airport with another suicide bomb. And it turned out that they were, it was just a family. And so the, United, the U.S. military killed a bunch of kids and you know, adult family members who were in actuality not a threat to our forces or anyone else in Kabul that day. It's a similar type of overreaction to, you know, kind of the starting point of being kind of lackadaisical about security issues, trying to pass them off as not really existing, and then overreacting in a mistaken way. And obviously, no one's died yet in this balloon situation thankfully. But it's a similar pattern, just kind of pretending that national security stuff that's going wrong isn't going wrong. And then after the fact, overcorrecting, taking hasty action just to show action and with bad consequences, obviously not as bad in the case of wasting a $400,000 sidewinder on a hobbyist balloon. That's not as bad, I should say, as, you know, certainly killing a family of Afghanis in Kabul. But it's a similar pattern and and one that I think highlights the fact that, I mean, what is the Biden administration's kind of compass when it comes to national security? What are they trying to do internationally? What is kind of their guiding purpose? And to be quite honest with you, I don't know. I don't think they know either, and they're just kind of following public opinion. I think that's very much what they've done with Ukraine, even though I think most of what they've done on Ukraine is is a good thing. Most folks in the United States, and especially most Democrats in the United States, weren't, didn't become highly supportive of Ukraine. I think our policy there would be quite different. And there is there does need to be a nexus of some sort between public opinion and national security and international stuff that we do. We are a... Republic, and we do vote for the people who represent us, but you'd like to see your administration kind of acting in a manner that indicates they've got, they're trying to head in a certain direction, that they've got a thought process behind what they're doing, other than just reacting to the public opinion of the day. You'd like to see them trying to shape public opinion, quite honestly if they are headed in a particular direction. And maybe we would disagree with that. Maybe I would disagree with it. There's a good chance I would if they were ever to articulate it, but they just haven't. 
and that's that's unfortunate because we're you know we're headed into and we are in a very kind of dangerous situation right now, not only in Ukraine, but with China generally. And you'd like to have an American administration that had its eye on the ball with this stuff and was trying to take us in a direction, at least we could have a, a debate about that direction and whether we agree it's the right right way to go or not. Okay, coming back to home here in Oregon. So every year, Multnomah County does a study of the number of folks who are homeless in Multnomah County who died in the previous year. Their most recent report, and this covering 2022, just came out. I'm going to read you a bit of this story in The Oregonian by Nicole Hayden that describes the findings in this most recent result. The number of people who died while experiencing homelessness increased 53% in Multnomah County between 2020 and 2021, officials announced Wednesday revealing a trend that continues to climb year after year. Let me uh, apologize for the mistake I made leading into that. These reports actually lag a year. So the the most recent numbers that came out this month were actually for 2021 and not for 2022. Continuing with the story, in 2020, 126 people who lived unsheltered died. In 2021, that number increased to 193, according to the latest Domicile Unknown report produced each year by the Multnomah County Health Department, the Medical Examiner's Office, and Street Roots, a local homeless nonprofit. A preliminary analysis from the first six months of 2022 showed that similar trends have persisted. Local officials fear what 2023 could bring. Once again, methamphetamine, a stimulant that can overstress the heart and brain, contributed to 93 or nearly half of all deaths of unhoused people in 2021. Aside from drug-related causes, deaths from homicides and cold weather also were cause for alarm. Fentanyl, a more potent opioid that is sold as cheap cheap pills or is laced in other substances, was a primary or contributing factor in 32% of the deaths, a dramatic increase from just four fentanyl-related deaths the previous years. So a couple things about this. One is the number of folks dying while homeless in Multnomah County, which includes almost all of Portland, keeps going up, keeps setting records. You know, a 53% increase from 2020 to 2021 is shocking, shockingly bad, and indicates that what Portland has been doing and what Oregon has been doing with regard to homelessness and this will come as no surprise to anyone listening to this podcast, is failing. There is no way that you can construe this any other way than that what we're doing is failing to the tune of increasing deaths at 53% year to year. Anyone that tells you that the approach to homelessness in Portland that has been pursued by most people running that city, the approach to homelessness in Oregon is working and we just need to keep doing more of it. We need to hold the course just point out this number to them. 53% more deaths in Portland from among the homeless community. There's no way you can link that up with success. It is an abject failure. The other point that I, I want to make is just the, the prevalence of methamphetamine and fentanyl and other illicit drugs in these deaths. And that number keeps climbing. I think I wrote a piece about this report when it came out last year. You know, a lot of the deaths were related to meth. Uh, Fewer of the deaths were related to fentanyl. That one's really jumped up. 
But what you see here is the connection between homelessness and particularly deaths of homeless people and these hard drugs that were decriminalized in Measure 110. And that's been kind of a hobby horse of mine for a while. Measure 110 is not the only cause of the addiction problem, including overdose deaths among Oregonians, including homeless Oregonians. But it, it sure as heck is not helping. These numbers, what they demonstrate is that a lot of these folks that are living on the streets and are dying are, di- are dying when these hard drugs are a contributing factor to their deaths. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. Some of these people presumably would still be alive, but for their ability to obtain methamphetamine, fentanyl, and other drugs. To the degree that Measure 110 makes those things more available, those drugs more available to people on the streets or elsewhere, Measure 110 is not a help. Would, would any of these people be better off? So Measure 110, again, decriminalized hard drugs. You know, no one's going to get thrown in jail for possession of small amounts, of relatively small amounts of these drugs. Would any of these people be better off or worse off, pardon me, if they had been thrown in jail because they were caught possessing methamphetamine instead of being allowed to just continue to use the drug and die? No. I think not. And you don't have to be a hardcore drug warrior or a just say no person to recognize that with these new drugs, the more, the stronger, more effective or effective in a bad way, methamphetamine and fentanyl, which is an entirely new drug on the scene in recent years, that people just are not able to even act in a rational, in a rational way. So when Measure 110 decriminalizes these drugs, tries to throw a bunch of money ineffectively at drug treatment instead, the assumption is that people that are not going to be made part of the criminal justice system are going to voluntarily take advantage of treatment treatment options that are available to them. And I think the evidence is just that that's not happening. No matter how much money you throw at that treatment, and we do need to throw money at treatment because our treatment system sucks, with these drugs that these folks are using now, they are not going to, in most cases, voluntarily avail themselves of treatment, no matter how much we spend on treatment. A lot of people end up getting into treatment because they are incarcerated. And I don't want to incarcerate nonviolent drug users any more than anyone else, but to couch a decriminalization of hard drugs as a more humane way to help folks get over their drug addiction and get back to or get to a more normal life where they're not in the process of killing themselves on our streets, it's just not working. It's not working that way. And that's why I've, you know, I've argued in the last couple of weeks about, you know, you just put the damn thing on pause. We have enough evidence that it's not working. You can pause the legislature right now could pass a law that pauses the decriminalization portion of Measure 110, keep all the money flowing. I know that's a lot of this, and I've got my issues with that too, but it's by far the less problematic part of Measure 110 right now. Just pause it. It's not working. And everyone who says, including our friend Shamia Fagan, that we just need to give it more time. Well, how many more people need to die using these drugs that have been decriminalized by Measure 110 until we just pause it, until we stop the decriminalization, put that on the back burner, give it a year or two, 
and then you know have it sunset so that it automatically decriminalizes again once that statute runs out because we've got it we just know it's not working and i don't know how you could argue that it is and if you look at most of the arguments about people that are still supportive of measure 110 it's like well don't don't repeal it because then the money doesn't doesn't get spent we need money spent on treatment fine you don't have to pause the whole the whole measure it's just a statute it's not a constitutional amendment the legislature could pause could pause the decriminalization i think the vast vast majority of oregonians would support that move, including a lot of Democrats. But it's not going to happen, and it's not going to happen because of the Democrats that serve in our legislature and the Democrats who run our state in every facet don't want to do it because big donors like the idea of this decriminalization as part of a new drug policy, regardless of the effect it's having in Oregon. It's an ideological commitment to it, and that's why you see the leadership of the left in this state continuing to hold on to that measure when everyone in this city, in this state, and I, I don't want to hear about any of this polling that's been done by these progressive pollster outfits that are push polls to show that Oregonians still support Measure 110. They don't. I promise you they don't. But they, Oregonians in real polls that are taken consistently prioritize drug addiction and crime and homelessness, all of which are connected with Measure 110 as their their biggest issues and the Oregon legislature would be would be well served and would well serve their constituents by just putting a pause on the decriminalization let the rest of it happen that's they're not going to do it and the fact that they're not going to do it means that they are you know complicit in the ongoing destruction of people's lives and in some cases their deaths as a result of the ubiquity of these drugs that have been decriminalized by measure 110 Not to say that Measure 110 is directly responsible for all these deaths or that it's responsible for the addiction crisis we have in Oregon, but we definitely know it's not helping. And if you talk to cops, they say it is hurting, and I wish our legislature would would come to understand that. Wanted to catch up a little bit on the scandals that we've been covering here at the Oregon Roundup, and I'm of two minds about this scandal stuff that we've been covering. I don't want to become just a, a scandal publication, but I do think that we have a lot to add to these to these things, you know, the, the the scandalous stuff that we've covered, you know, this OLCC booze scandal set aside thing where the some managers at the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission set aside rare booze for their own use and leading eventually to the resignation of the head of the OLCC and now the chair of the commission itself. And then this issue about the $500,000 donation the Democrat Party of Oregon received from a friend of Sam Bankman-Fried, who is charged with fraud for defrauding a bunch of people who invested in his cryptocurrency scam. So those are kind of the two scandals that we've been, we've been focused on. And we, there will be more on both of those coming out. We continue to do reporting or whatever... You call what I'm doing as someone who doesn't know how to do reporting. We will have new stuff coming out on both of those here soon. As I said, I'm of two minds. We we don't I don't want the Oregon Roundup just to be pursuing scandal stories. I do also think that we do have a lot to add to that. And our work on these two scandals in particular, I think demonstrates why. 
it's because I come at this stuff from a different ideological and partisan perspective than the other people covering it, quite honestly. Of all the reporters who've written stuff about both the OLCC scandal and the $500,000 donation, I'm pretty sure I'm the only person who's written about it, you know, with the possible exception of Lars. Well, Lars Larson has talked about it. So basically me and Lars are the only people who didn't vote for Tina Kotak who have been talking publicly or writing publicly about this stuff. And it just brings a different perspective. So, you know, with this OLCC scandal, you know, what I've been most interested in and continue to be most interested in is whether Tina Kotek lied when she said she didn't know about this booze scandal when she asked for Steve Marks's the OLCC director's resignation. The timeline, as I described in that piece I wrote a while back, indicates to me that more likely than not she did know about it. And then why did she say that she and her administration was unaware of it? That's a story I'm pursuing that I continue to pursue. And I think I'm the only person who cares about it. And I think one of the reasons there's kind of two explanations for why I'm the only person who cares about it that's writing about this stuff. Either that I'm the only person who isn't protecting Tina Kotek in this or who cares enough about what Tina Kotek is doing to write about that aspect of the story. You know, maybe these reporters all know something I don't and that she, she really didn't know when she asked for Marx's, uh, Marx's resignation. I, and that could be true. On the other hand, everything they keep reporting is just that she didn't know without any explanation of, you know, how she knew when or when specifically. We know when she found out, apparently. It's been reported on February 1st. But when did she ask for Marx's resignation? We still don't know that. He announced it on February 1st. Sure seems to me that it would make sense for Kotek to have learned of the scandal and then said, hey, Steve, you're gone because this is a bad deal. I don't think anyone would question her about that, but that's not what she said happened. I'm of two minds about the scandal stuff, but there will be more. It won't be everything we do. But it does take a lot of time to do that stuff because it takes research. It talks... It takes talking to people. I'm actually talking to sources now, which is something that I've never done in my life. And so it takes a lot of effort, and I hope it's it's valuable. I do think it's an area where we can provide value beyond just opinion, and that's where the Oregon Roundup comes from, is me writing what I think about things, which I think is somewhat valuable, too. But there's a lot of people who do that, and really kind of my operating assumption is that, and my operating belief is that one of the things that's got Oregon politics so screwed up is that no one is covering our politics from a perspective other than a progressive pr perspective. And I think that's one thing we bring to both of these scandals, as well as the policy stuff that we've covered extensively in the past and will continue to cover. We just have a different perspective on that stuff, and we try to write true, good stuff about that, about the parts of these things that matter we're going to keep doing that. So updates on these. I kind of went over the OLCC update. Steve Marks resigned. Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission. Paul Rosenbaum resigned. He had a kind of a fiery statement at an OLCC meeting earlier this week, and Governor Kotek asked him to resign. He has done that as well. On the Fagan stuff, so the media has been really focused on the OLCC stuff, and they, they're coming out with stories now about the exact number of bottles that these OLCC managers set aside, which I suppose is interesting, but these managers have all admitted on the record that they did the stuff. They all admitted that they violated Oregon ethics laws. 
I don't know, I guess there's some color around the story that's being added, but it's, we already know that stuff that they did it. They're not denying that they did it. I wish that some of these reporters would focus on some other aspects of it. That's what I'm trying to do. But on the this Fagan stuff and the $500,000 donation, that has completely fallen off the radar here in Oregon. But it's something that I'm still thinking and working on quite a bit. There hasn't been any new developments since the last time I kind of checked in on this, which is when Shamia Fagan, Oregon Secretary of State, appointed Molly Woon to be the permanent director of the elections division of the Oregon Secretary of State. The elections division is theoretically investigating whether there are grounds for criminal charges against the folks who made the $500,000 donation, which was originally falsely reported as coming from this entity called Living Trust LLC out of Nevada, but actually came from this guy with the last name of Singh, who worked for Sam Bankman-Fried. And there's a question as to whether it actually came from Sam Bankman-Fried to begin with. And Singh was this pass between, and then it was misreported originally by Living Trust. So there's that investigation in terms of the people who gave the money. There should be an investigation into whether the Democratic Party of Oregon broke the law in accepting the donation and reporting it as being from Living Trust LLC to begin with. And that's the part that's troubling about the way the investigation is going. It's been going for months now. Haven't heard anything about it recently. You wonder if they're just kind of hoping it goes away and dies. I'm expecting one of these Friday afternoons that they'll they'll report that, oh, shoot, we didn't find anything, so let's just go, I'll, I'll, I'll go do something else. That hasn't happened yet. The investigation, in theory, is still happening. Last night, actually, because this is what I do with my time, I... Uh, I got to thinking about this and kind of started pursuing a legal theory. I remembered I'm a lawyer, so I can actually look at this stuff in this way. I think there may be a mechanism to get this in front of the attorney general, and I won't go into detail. I'm going to write something about this, probably file a complaint, honestly, with the attorney general, which isn't something I've ever done, that lays out why the attorney general should and is authorized to and must investigate this matter herself and not wait for the Secretary of State to recommend that the AG's office look into it as well, which is what they're saying they're going to do now. And it all has to do with the Oregon statute that says that in the when there's an election complaint that calls into question a political committee that supports the Secretary of State, that complaint can and should be filed with the Attorney General. To my knowledge, that hasn't happened yet. But it's a way to get around at least the conflict of interest that is readily apparent by Fagan's office allegedly investigating this Democrat Party of Oregon that's given her hundreds of thousands of dollars in the past. Anyway, I'll have more on that soon. I want to write something up about it. That is definitely one to keep to keep an eye on going forward. If you have any questions about that or thoughts about any of this stuff, you can always reach me via email at jeff at eagerlawpc.com. It's J-E-F-F at E-A-G-E-R-L-A-W-P-C dot com. Finally today, a little more lighthearted stuff. A good friend of of mine and a good friend of the Oregon Roundup sent me a really hilarious clip this past week. Anyone who's familiar with Bend, Oregon, which is probably most of you that are listening to this, knows that Bend has a certain brand to it, outdoorsy, 
A lot of people drive Subarus. There's just a thing about this place that's not so different than other Western cities like Bozeman or Boulder or something like that. This clip is this this guy named Matt Lyons posting on Instagram. We'll play it here, but I'll just let you, let you know as a preview that the guy's name is Bear, first name Bear, middle name Carabiner. So take a listen, and I hope you have a great weekend. My name's Bear, and saying I'm going to thrive here in Bend is a total understatement. I literally had to beg my old landlord to let me pay more than $600 in rent, so moving here might be the best decision of my life. Most days you can find me drinking sour beers while wearing extremely tight pants that are rolled up at the ankles. I just got this tattoo of the mountains, and it just reminds me that the earth is sort of our playground. So get this, when I was seven, my grandma bought me an espresso machine, and I really haven't looked back since. My middle name is Carabiner. I have six or seven different pairs of Birkenstocks. I like to ride my rollerblades to my job at the local REI, but if it's bad weather, I'll take my Subaru Forester. Speaking of which, my entire personality revolves around extreme sports, climbing, snowboarding, slam poetry, you name it. If you see me with white powder on my face, it's just climbing chalk from the day at Smith Rock. And that's all we've got for this episode of the Oregon Roundup. If you haven't subscribed to us on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcasting app, please do so. That helps more people find out about us and hear the wonderful things that we cover here on the Oregon Roundup podcast. Once you've subscribed, if you like this podcast, give us a five-star review and tell us why. I'll read your review on the show if you leave me one and it's five stars. If you leave me one and it's zero stars, I definitely won't read it. If you're not a paid subscriber to the Oregon Roundup, that's another way to help us out. It's only five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year to help support our newsletter and our podcast. You can sign up for all of it at Substack. That's at Oregon Roundup, all one word, slash Substack.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at OregonRoundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at OregonRoundup.substack.com.